Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Expert Cardiology Perspectives in Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, Slowing Disease Progression with Early Diagnosis and Integration of Cardiac Myosin Inhibitors. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol Myers Squibb. Hello, I'm Anjali Owens from the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Jeffrey Geske from the Mayo Clinic. In the first session, we'll discuss how to assess patients with suspected hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So one of the challenges in diagnosing HCM is the heterogeneity that we see in patients who have this disease, both in phenotypic presentation and also in symptoms. For example, we have patients who are completely asymptomatic and also patients who have a range of cardiopulmonary symptoms that can at times overlap with other cardiac conditions. These symptoms, when present, include shortness of breath that typically occurs with exertion, exercise intolerance, fatigue, palpitations, dizziness or lightheadedness, which can even progress to syncope, and chest discomfort that can be typical angina or atypical in nature. Perhaps one of the most common symptoms in the practice that we see is dyspnea on exertion, which can vary from day to day. There can be good days and bad days. One symptom that is very suggestive of obstructive HCM is postprandial chest discomfort or exacerbation of symptoms in general after eating. It's important to recognize these signs and symptoms early. Dr. Geske, can you tell us how you assess patients with suspected HCM in your practice? Taking a really good personal history is something that allows you to understand the individual nature of the patient's HCM symptoms or lack thereof. And then coupling that with physical exam and their family history is really the first part of what I do. And then I turn to testing. Testing starts with the ECG and the echocardiogram, knowing that the vast majority of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy will also end up with additional cardiac imaging to include a cardiac MRI. And frequently, we will involve genetic testing and genetic counselors, not so much for treatment of symptoms or prevention of sudden cardiac death, but largely for family screening in patients with HCM. I have a very similar approach, Dr. Gaskin Clinic, and so often the clues are there in other generations that have had sudden unexplained death or, quote, heart attack at an early age, AIDS bed, or stroke at an early age. So that multi-generation family history is really a key piece of what we do. The other sort of corroborating history that's important is to always talk with the patient's family members when they come into clinic and really get that longitudinal assessment of functional tolerance. I'll actually ask my patients to rate their perceived functional capacity on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the highest and 1 being the lowest, and I'll then ask their loved ones the same question. And it's always interesting to see when there's a discrepancy between the two, and many times that will bring out some symptom history that has yet to be revealed. In the next session, we'll discuss the utility of different imaging modalities to confirm the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Imaging plays a crucial role in this structural heart disease, And it goes beyond diagnosis. It tells us about the hemodynamic effects that are occurring within the ventricle, the severity of the phenotype, and much of cardiac risk stratification for sudden death really involves imaging parameters. 
The go-to first test for cardiac imaging is the echocardiogram. And transthoracic echocardiogram really is quite involved in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. There's certainly 2D imaging, but then oftentimes we will use changes in loading conditions to include valsalva maneuver, repetitive squat to stand, sometimes amyl nitrite inhalation. Doppler assessment during each of those is important. Tissue Doppler, strain, and culminating all of that together gives us a real sense of the individual unique nature of a patient's anatomy and physiology. And then we go beyond that into cardiac MRI, which provides unique tissue characterization, as well as better assessment for apical aneurysms, as well as functional testing through exercise. And exercise testing, we will typically use cardiopulmonary stress testing, maybe with or without accompanying echocardiogram. ECHO has unique ability to look at mitral valve anatomy and motion with high temporal resolution. And I will once again emphasize the need to look at this with multiple loading conditions to understand if there's provocable obstruction present in the midventricle or in the outflow tract, which can have effects on the mitral apparatus. There's really a synergistic role between echocardiogram and cardiac MRI. But Dr. Owens, I would be curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. They're certainly not mutually exclusive. And although transthoracic echo is kind of the everyday workhorse of HCM longitudinally year after year, certainly cardiac MRI provides complementary information with regard to tissue characterization and specifically with regards to presence of fibrosis and how we now utilize that in our decision making with regard to risk stratification for sudden cardiac death and progression to heart failure, et cetera. What other conditions can mimic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy by the presence of left ventricular hypertrophy? And how do you go about sorting out what's causing the left ventricular hypertrophy in patients? That's a great question. And common ones that I end up encountering are hypertensive heart disease, athletic heart, as well as cardiac amyloidosis. And the unique combination of echocardiogram, which provides tissue Doppler and strain, as well as cardiac MRI, which gives that late kidal enhancement, as well as other tissue characterization, are really important things for discriminating between these different entities, as well as the clinical history. In the next session, we'll take a look at the efficacy of cardiac myosin inhibitors for treatment of obstructive HCM. So let's talk about the pivotal phase three trial, Explore HCM, which led to the FDA approval of mavicamidin for patients with symptomatic obstructive HCM. And the primary endpoint was a composite of improvement in peak VO2 and improvement in NYHA functional class. So what we saw in this trial is that patients improved in their symptoms they improved in their functional class, they improved their gradients, and their objective exercise tolerance. Can you tell us a bit, Dr. Geske, about the next Phase three Valor HCM trial? Absolutely. So Valor HCM looked at a sicker cohort of patients. This group was vastly NYHA class 3 and had severe provocable obstruction. 
this group had significant improvement in obstruction, improvement in symptoms, and actually became septa reduction therapy ineligible due to their symptom improvement and improvement of alpha tract obstruction. So crossover trials, so those who were initially assigned to placebo became subsequently assigned to the Mavicampton group, and similar effects were seen within that group. And this has led to a recent updated label that actually says that Mavicampton can be used to reduce eligibility for septal reduction therapy. We'll now transition to discussion of a different cardiac myosin inhibitor, that of Afficampton. Dr. Owens, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, the Redwood HZAM trial involved a low-dose Afficampton cohort, which is labeled as cohort one, a higher-dose cohort, which is cohort two, versus placebo. Patients who were mainly class two and three, and we saw reduction in gradient by week two. And that was sustained in a dose-dependent manner until week 10, and then reverted to baseline during the washout, which occurred between weeks 10 and 12. So again, what we saw similar to Mavicampton is a substantial reduction in LVOT gradient, both resting and Valsalva. So Dr. Geske, what do you think we've seen so far in terms of differences between Mavicampton and Afficampton? Mavicampton has the distinct benefit of already being FDA approved, so it's something that can be clinically prescribed right now. And in addition, there is more data available through the Valor trial, Explorer as well. Afficampton is not yet FDA approved, but has some different molecular properties. It has a shorter half-life, which may allow for easier dose titration should that infrequent LV systolic dysfunction occur. Dr. Owens, what do you think? It's good for us to have options. There will be some patients that may benefit more from one drug or the other, and it's yet to be seen. We're obviously waiting for the Sequoia HCM trial, which is the pivotal phase three for afficampton. Wonderful. In the next section, let's take a look at the safety profiles of cardiac myosin inhibitors in patients with obstructive HCM. From a safety standpoint, one of the concerns with cardiac myosin inhibitors as a negative inotrope is the potential for left ventricular ejection fraction becoming low. And this was seen in the Explorer trial, where seven patients had an LVEF that dropped below 50% in the initial portion of the trial. With that said, the overall trend as far as reduction and ejection fraction is not to trend below 50%, but those transient dips are possible. We saw a similar trend present in the Valor HCM trial. Again, a smaller cohort for Valor and thus a lower number of patients that drop below 50% for their EF, with the overall reduction in LVEF being not nearly as much as a dip to below 50%. Dr. Owens, do we see these trends with Afficampton as well? Yes, I really think this is going to be a class effect of cardiac myosin inhibition, that there will be a slight decrease in ejection fraction. And that is, in fact, what was seen in aggregate in the Redwood HCM study and the Forest HCM study. Importantly, these drugs are cardiac-specific and they are reversible. So if you decrease the dose or stop the dose, then the ejection fraction recovers to baseline. And that's an important point when we get into how to manage these drugs in the real world. 
Speaking of the real world use of Mavicantin, have you observed any different safety signals compared to what we saw in the clinical trials, Dr. Geske? It's fairly representative what I've seen in the trials versus real world. Drug-drug interactions are not insignificant in the clinical patients that I've come across. How about you, Dr. Owens? Any differences? With clinical trials versus the real world, you introduce comorbidities that were excluded in the trials, though there will be patients with concomitant coronary artery disease and other significant comorbidities. We'll see if there's any difference in the efficacy and safety of the drugs as we get more data and more patients on these medications. So in the next session, we'll discuss some of the practical considerations for using cardiac myosin inhibitors for the treatment of obstructive HCM. So let's talk about the initiation of Mavicampton in patients with symptomatic obstructive HCM. We bring patients back once a month for the first three months to assess echocardiogram. And on the echo, we're looking for two things. We're looking for the LVOT gradient at rest and Valsalva and also the ejection fraction. In the first three months, we are not up titrating the dose. The only option is to maintain at 5 milligrams or to reduce the dose to 2.5 milligrams if you identify someone who is a super responder or poor metabolizer. And if you do reach a patient who has to withhold drug at week eight, then you can restart at 2.5 milligrams if the ejection fraction remains above 50% at week 12. We then move on to the maintenance phase. If at any point during treatment, the LVEF drops below 50%, you interrupt Mavicampton treatment. You bring the patient back in about four weeks to recheck an echo and ensure that the ejection fraction has recovered to over 50%. If it has recovered, then you restart Mavicampton at the next lower dose. So if you are on five milligrams, then you restart at two and a half milligrams, so on and so forth. If you have a patient who drops their LVEF to less than 50% twice on the lowest available dose, which is currently 2.5 milligrams, then you permanently discontinue the drug. So Dr. Geske, in order to prescribe Mavicampton currently, you need to be enrolled in the REMS program. Could you tell us about the REMS program? Absolutely, Anjali. This is an FDA based program that follows for safety and is required to clinically prescribe Mavicampton. Providers must be enrolled, patients must be enrolled, and there's actually even specialty pharmacies just to keep this all very much followed closely. And follow-up of this drug requires serial echocardiograms. Because of that risk for LV systolic dysfunction, there's a total of seven echocardiograms required within the first year assuming that there's no need to reduce the dose. Even though this is a lot of monitoring and it can be overwhelming when a new drug enters into the scene, it is really fascinating to see how this is shifting the landscape of treatment of hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. Dr. Owens, any parting thoughts from you? Yes, Jeff. Patients that are very difficult to treat are, of course, our non-obstructive HCM patients. And so the next frontier is going to be clinical trials of myosin inhibitors in the non-obstructive HCM population. And this is really an exciting time to be an HCM physician and to finally have things to offer to our patients that can actually make them better. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you for listening. 
Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.